when crazy things and crazy opportunities come up, unless I can think of a really good reason not to do it, I just take it. You know, people want to have a happy life. They want to raise their kids and educate their kids in a peaceful country and they want to make a decent living and leave a legacy and make the people around them happy. Another mistake that I see a lot of is misreading the market. And what I mean by that is choosing a market to go into and not understanding how it works. And that shows up in a few ways. So people have either not properly sized the market so they haven't understood the size of the opportunity. I mean, if you're gonna go and sell in somebody else's backyard, you need to understand what it's like, right? You can't assume that everything is gonna be like home. And, and that is coming up next on Bootstrapping Your Dream Show. So stay tuned. So the big question is this, how are ambitious people like us who don't have a lot of resources, did not go to Ivy League colleges, were not born into wealth, how do we become resourceful enough? Use our creativity, our dedication and a little bit of crazy to bootstrap our way to realizing our dreams. Whether it is launching a new company, launching a new app or making it to the top of the corporate ladder. That is the question and this podcast will give you the answers. We have created a tremendous community of bootstrappers, entrepreneurs and professionals who are ambitious, resourceful and want to get things done. We brainstorm, support and help each other out. So come join us. Navigate to bootstrapping.group. Join today and get the Startup Founders Technology Accelerator video series absolutely free. If you enjoy this video, then do let us know by hitting that like button now. Or if you want us to improve our content, then go ahead and hit that thumbs down button and give us your honest feedback in the comment section below. Here at Tata Noodle, we are passionate about entrepreneurship, technology and innovation. Every week we bring you insightful and engaging videos, interviews, tips, tricks and strategies to help you grow your business or rise in your corporate profession. If you're new here, please do consider subscribing and do not forget to hit that bell icon so that you are notified when we publish new content. Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of Bootstrapping Your Dream Show. I'm your host Manoj Agarwal and today we'll be talking with Cynthia Diren. Uh, Cynthia is an amazing Australian entrepreneur. She's trade and business strategist and she has an extensive knowledge about the world economy. She is the founder of the International Business Accelerator and author of Amazon's bestseller Camels, Sheikhs and Billionaires. Very interesting title. Uh, it's, an, it's a pleasure to have you Cynthia. Welcome. Great to be on the show, Manish. All right. So just so you, uh, we get to um, know you better, can you tell us a little bit about your background, your story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it would be fair to say that since I was a small child, I have been very interested in two things. One was international things. I was always fascinated by other countries and people from other places. And the other thing was business. So. Uh, Legend has it, I actually remember this when I was about four years old, I thought I'd try and create a business by taking all the oranges off the tree in our back garden, which were truly disgusting and not sweet at all. And I was going to take them and sell them. And my parents looked at me with pity and said, okay, go and do it. And they were a bit shocked a couple of hours later when I, I came back with $5 and I'd sold all of them. So wow. from the time I was little, I always wanted to do business stuff. And I was always very, very interested in um anything to do with overseas and I remember being about seven years old doing a school project on Indonesia 
which is a neighbour of Australia, and being devastated when I had to, I found out that I had to do the research out of library books rather than going off to Indonesia and, you know, going around and finding stuff out myself. I thought it was cheating. So that kind of carried through with me into uh, school and university and being an adult. And I did a law degree when I left school and then I joined the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And I became a diplomat because that was sort of where I'd evolved to on the way and something I really wanted to do. So I did that for about five years. And in, in that time, I got sent off to the Middle East to learn Arabic, mm. which had never been part of my plan originally. But I do have this policy that when crazy things and crazy opportunities come up, unless I can think of a really good reason not to do it, I just take it. So uh, I did take the opportunity and went off, learned Arabic, lived in Egypt, lived in the United Arab Emirates um, and took a completely different path to the one that I thought I would take in the diplomatic corps because my plan was to do either a French-speaking posting or a Japanese-speaking posting because I had those two languages but I didn't. I went to the Arab world. A few years later, I did a Master of Middle East Politics in London and then I turned into a management consultant and as luck would have it, at that time... Uh, the Iraq war was on, um, the, the, the second or, or maybe even the third Gulf War. And because of my diplomatic background and because I spoke Arabic, I got picked up out of London as a consultant and I was planning to spend six months working in Iraq as a consultant, helping the British government get the you know parts of the economy back on its feet. And it turned into four years. And over that time, I worked with the British government I worked with the US Department of Defense and with USAID on a series of projects to try and really piece the economy and the administration back together in Iraq. I mean, you might say it was a bit of a qualified success. Uh, it didn't all go entirely according to plan, as you know, as we can see looking back. But that was a really fascinating time and gave me some real insights into, you know, the massive opportunities that are out there in the world. But after about 12 years away in all these different places around the world, the States, the Middle East, Europe, the UK, I was very, very homesick. Uh, and I thought I've really got to go back to Australia. So I came back here and I ran a bilateral chamber of commerce and industry group helping Australian companies to um, take their business to the Middle East. And again, I could see that while there were all these huge opportunities, there was a real gap in people's capacity to understand how to, to get an opportunity and then to execute on it in a way that wasn't going to tank their domestic business. And so in 2013, um, I actually started my own business helping companies go first into the Middle East and then over time we've actually broadened that out and we now work with mid-sized companies and smaller companies to take their business international, to help them go global. Awesome, that's great. Well, you have a very unique perspective, and if if I can just confirm, so you were in Iraq while the war was going on. I was. I was there from September wow. two thousand and six right through to March two thousand and ten, and it was wow. a pretty wild ride, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, all right, so let's talk about your uh, your perspective because you know 
a lot of people, especially especially in North America, you know, people don't travel much and they don't know there's a there's a whole uh, world that exists outside of North America. So um, tell us a little bit about uh, you know how your perspective has changed after living in all these uh, different countries, understanding their cultures, understanding these economies. You know, I think that's a really great question. When I first had the opportunity to go to the Middle East, I was kind of freaked out. I will be very honest about that because when people used to ask me where I wanted to be posted, I had this quip that I would make. I had this joke and I would laugh and say, oh, I'll go anywhere except Papua New Guinea or the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And then I got asked to go there. So at the time, I really thought that I was well-educated, well-informed, reasonably well-travelled. And, I, you know, I had my particular view of the world. What I learned over, you know, 12 years of living internationally, um, I think, to put it in a nutshell, was probably to be more open-minded and to be willing to try and look at life from other people's points of view. You know, you go to a new country, which is, or an, and a new culture, was, which is often completely unknown. And if it's one like the Middle East, it's often quite intimidating because the media puts out all these messages about what a scary place the Middle East is. And most people, I think, um, imagine that everybody in the Middle East jumps out of bed in the, in the morning and grabs an AK-47 and <laughs> you know, runs off to war. Or that, um, you know, everybody, uh, every woman who wears the veil is oppressed and you you know you come up against all these stereotypes that you've encountered and as you live there you actually find out that the vast majority of them are not true and that really when it comes to people although there are things that divide us in terms of our culture there are many more things that sep that, that 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 actually bring us together that that, yeah. that join us and when it comes down to it most human beings want exactly the same thing you know people want to have a happy life they want to raise their kids and educate their kids in a peaceful country and they want to make a decent living and leave a legacy and make the people around them happy. And that's a fairly common theme. And I think, you know, living in all those different places and seeing so many different kinds of people really drove that home for me and really made it a reality uh, and really helped me to understand that I could have friends from anywhere in the world, didn't matter what they looked like, didn't want that matter what they sounded like. It didn't want, matter what they believed. Even when there were things that were different or things that we didn't agree on, uh, you know, we could still be friends. We could still get along and love each other and um, do good things for each other that would make a difference. So I think that's mainly what it taught me. Exactly. No, I completely agree. I mean, uh, traveling to different cultures, experiencing them is the best form of education. I think it it opens up your mind. It it opens up, uh, you know, all the, all your misconceptions that that you had from the media. They're all gone. And as you said, like you know, we are all humans. And so, uh, even though I may not be as traveled, uh, well traveled as you are, but I definitely think traveling around the world, experiencing different cultures, is is the best education you can get. Right. If you let it change you. You have yeah. to be open-minded enough to actually absorb what's coming at you and be mm -hmm. willing to say, wow, you know, I thought this, but now I realise it's not like this, it's like that. Yeah, yeah, that's true as well. Yeah, you have to be open-minded. Um, all right, so uh, now let's talk about the economy. You know, uh, again, uh, as the media feeds us uh, the news, the economy is not doing well and 
you know, climate change is real for sure. So that's a, that's a separate story. But overall, you know, the economy is like uh, going through a trade war and whatnot. Um, and uh, from your perspective, you know, you have a global view, a much better view of the economy. What is actually going on under the covers? Is it uh, getting better or is it getting worse? Oh, that's a huge question. I think we could be here all day on that. Look, uh, it's complicated. I don't think there's really a one-size-fits-all answer, and it's going to be dependent country to country. So, I mean, if you yeah. were to take the trade war, for example, uh, the US-China trade war is on one level quite destabilising for the global economy as a whole because wherever you've got uncertainty, people hold back from investing, people hold back on their plans. So it takes the momentum out. Um, there's not as much spending. You know, that starts to create a bit of a downward cycle. But if you look at it in terms of different countries, the picture is a little bit different. So, you know, we're down here in Australia. Long term, the trade war is not very good for us. But short term, it has actually created some opportunities. So, you know, wherever China and the States have blocked each other on certain products, uh, it gives us an advantage because we can actually sell less expensively. So agriculture is one sector where at the moment that conflict is providing a short-term window of opportunity for us to do better than we otherwise would. And there are some people who say, well, mm, let's actually not have a US-China free trade agreement because it's going to take opportunity away from Australia. Uh, yeah. In the context of that conflict, again, if you look at Vietnam, Vietnam is probably in some ways rubbing its hands because of the trade dispute because a lot mm. of manufacturers have picked up from China and moved their operations across to Vietnam where for the moment they're not going to be touched by sanctions. Yeah. So, you know, some bits are going up while other bits are, are going down. I think yeah. it's probably not the most optimistic time in the world because of that conflict, because of the tension um, that's occurring at the moment, you know, across the Middle East and between the States and Iran yeah. uh, and also, you know, over in the UK with what's going on with Brexit. Yeah, yeah. But by the same token, it's not the worst of times either. And I think you always have to keep geopolitics in mind as you are going about building a global business. But, you know, depending on what you sell, people still have to eat. Yeah. People still have to wear clothes. People still want to use software. You know, people need to drive cars and own Rolexes and take holidays. So it's not as though everything grinds to a halt. Yeah, yeah. And as you look at the risk, you kind of have to price it in to your plans. Very true, very true. Um, now let's talk about entrepreneurship. So is the economy doing better for entrepreneurs or uh, is it getting worse? Because, you know, obviously you're helping people go international and uh, international market is humongous um, as compared to any regional market. So how is that like over the, over the past uh, few years, how is it uh, progressing? Look, it's ups and downs, uh, and I think, it, again, it's going to depend country to country what's happening. So if you look at Australia at the moment, we've had a, a kind of an uncertain year because politically we've had a federal election, we've had some elections in different states. That stopped people from spending. People do have a little bit of a question mark over, well, what's, should we, if we're going into the UK, should we go ahead or should we wait and see what happens with Brexit? People have got similar questions in their minds about should we go to the US now or should we go to China? But for the US market, for example, uh, I have just before we started this conversation, I've gotten off the phone with two separate companies 
who are both going into the US market, neither one mentioned the, the trade war mm -hmm. and neither one showed any hesitation about going there. So from their point of view, you know, it's not a problem. I think especially with new businesses and small businesses, sometimes mm -hmm. the things that are most important are things like the ability to get funding and whether people can actually secure enough funding to make their idea go forward. Now, in Australia, we are very, very conservative about that. So, um, you know, banks don't want to lend to tiny businesses and we don't have the same VC culture as the states. Mm -hmm. So one thing that you do see at the moment is you talk to people who want to go global is they say, I really want to do it, but can we actually fund, fund that? And this is where the domestic economy can start to play into it because if they can't cash flow it from their own revenue, and the banks won't lend to them and they're struggling to find an angel or a VC investor, that's going to put a stop to their projects. Um, yeah, the impression that I get, you know, as I look at Australian companies going to the States, as I said, is that they're not really hesitant about that. Um, and it seems to me that, you know, the, the trade war is creating some hesitancy in the US economy, but you know, over the last couple of years, we've seen that it's actually done pretty well. Yeah. And that, you know, should give people confidence about their ability to go ahead and, and get their stuff out to other markets. Sure. All right. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you uh, must be working with a lot of entrepreneurs and uh, maybe uh, small business owners, startup founders. Uh, what are some of the challenges they face, typical challenges, uh, apart from funding, uh, to go into the international market? Look, I like to talk about mistakes that people make. I think sure. that because these mistakes are often the things that create challenges. And I was going to ask about the mistakes next, but let's go there. Well, they're kind of, they often, it's the mistakes that cause the challenges. So I might talk about a couple of the mistakes and then tell you what the impact of them is. Sure, sure. To be honest, there are heaps that people can make, but let me just mention three. One that I say all the time that happens at the outset is, is something I call soft focus. Mm -hmm. And that is people starting on the going global project without a really clear understanding of why they are doing it personally and in terms of what it will mean for the company, without a really clear idea of what success looks like and without some real... Um, goals and metrics defined in terms of hard numbers and uh, in terms of not being clear on really what they want to create. So people often start with a general idea. So you might have heard people say things like, ah, oh, the Chinese market is huge for our product. You know, there are this many hundred million people who could buy what we sell. If we could just get 1% of it, that would be, that'd be awesome. I hear a lot of that kind of talk and a lot of that kind of thinking. That is a massive make, mistake that people make because when you go in with fuzzy focus, soft focus, you don't know where you're going. It's like flying blind. You're trying this thing, you're trying that thing. Um, you don't have any roadmap that, that guides you as to where you should go. You don't have goals and milestones. So you, you don't know what success looks like and so therefore you don't know when you've achieved it. And I liken it a bit to getting in a car and driving around without any planners to the end destination. Now, I do know people who love just getting in the car and driving around for fun without knowing where they're going. 
I'm not one of those people. So I believe that you should work out your destination first and then get in the car and drive it. So that soft focus mistake is one I see a lot and the challenge that it creates is a real lack of direction and lack of strategy. Another mistake that I see a lot of is misreading the market. And what I mean by that is choosing a market to go into and not understanding how it works. And that shows up in a few ways. So people have either not properly sized the market so they haven't understood the size of the opportunity. And so typically people either think it's way bigger than it really is and so they go chasing a pipe dream that they can never really realise because the there just aren't enough people wanting to buy what they sell or they underestimate the opportunity. And so instead of pouring all their energy into that one thing in that one market, they go off and they diversify. You know, they, ta- they attack another market or they develop several new product lines and they basically disperse their energy rather than sticking with the thing that they've got. So that's one way you can misread the market to just not do the sizing properly. Um, you can just misunderstand if there's an opportunity at all. So I worked with a company a couple of years ago that was growing hydroponic fruit and vegetables mm-hmm. and um, they desperately wanted to go to China and I said, you know, China's a very difficult market for a number of reasons. You should probably go somewhere where it's going to be easy for you to get your stuff in and I listed a few other places that that could be possible and they insisted that they wanted to do China. What they didn't know was that China doesn't have market access for the things they wanted to grow, which means that although in theory there's this huge market of Chinese people wanting to buy these awesome hydroponic fruit and vegetables that they grow, Chinese law only permits about six things from Australia to be sold into China and those six things were none of the things that they were planning to produce. So they dumped a whole lot of time and energy into that market only to find out that it wasn't going to work for them at all because they just couldn't. They couldn't sell there no matter how badly uh, they wanted to. And the third way that you can get it wrong is that you can just misunderstand how the market works. So there might be a great opportunity there. And there might really be a huge market and you might be able to get market access, but perhaps you just don't understand the market dynamics. And this is a a mistake that we see Australian founders and entrepreneurs make all the time when they go to the United States. So people often believe that, hey, you know, we speak English, we have a lot of um, US TV here in Australia, we understand how the culture works, we're pretty much the same. And they get there and they find out that... um, You know, the way that people sell is totally different. The way that people negotiate is different. Even the way that uh, products are distributed is different and you need different things in a different setup to make it work. And I have, uh, you know, I know a couple of people personally who, again, have gone into the US market, used up hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to sell their product, but done it completely the wrong way because they just didn't realise. They misread the market and they didn't understand the dynamic uh, you know, luckily the, the people I'm thinking of managed to pull out of the market, uh, regroup, get it together, change their strategy and go back in and do it the right way. But, you know, it wasted a huge amount of time and energy in the process. So that's, um, you know, that's another massive challenge. So soft focus, misreading the market. Oh, there are heaps of others, but I guess one other one I should mention is what I like to call cultural clangers. And that's just not understanding the culture that you're going into. 
not understanding how people think, not understanding their values, not understanding how people want you to relate to them and going through and making uh, a, a range of mistakes which can be as small as handing over your business card the wrong way and having somebody think you're a bit rude right through to, you know, misinterpreting where somebody's coming from and um, getting crossed wires and essentially junking an entire negotiation because you haven't understood the negotiation style. Yeah. So those are some of the biggest ones. That's cool. But, I mean, um, there's a common thread I, I see in them. It's all about education. It's all about getting familiar with the other cultures and, and educating yourself about, you know, how they live in their country and how they conduct their business, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if you're going to go and sell in somebody else's backyard, you need to understand what it's like, right? You can't exactly. assume that everything is going to be like home. And so many people just want to take whatever's worked at home and copy paste it elsewhere. And they think, well, it works here. Of course it will work there. Sometimes it does, but most of the time it's not going to be a hundred percent the same and you are going to have to adjust things as you go. Yeah. All right. And now let's uh, look at the other side of things. And uh, maybe if you, if you are uh, open to it, maybe you, you can share some strategies that do work um, when you go to international markets, when you go to Middle East markets. Yeah, look, absolutely. Uh, one of the most important ones, I think, is, and I just can't overstate this enough, you really need to do your research. You either need to do it yourself and commit to doing it, or you need to go and get somebody who understands how to do it and have them do it for you. Uh, a lot of people get excited about an idea. Mm -hmm. They jump on a plane. They go around. They create a whole lot of contacts. They get a whole lot of momentum going. And then they get home and there's really no strategy to follow it up. There's no plan. And they get sucked back into business as usual and it collapses in a heap. So I spoke to a company this morning who said that they had made five trips to the United States in the last year. Mm. They'd attended three trade shows. From one trade show that they went to, they got 115 leads. They set up a serviced office and then they realised they didn't have anybody to follow those leads up with. They didn't have a salesperson on the ground. And so although that company might get there, because I, I think they're pretty determined, they've basically burned, oh, I don't know exactly how much, but hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash. They've used up their time. They've used up their energy. They've probably uh, spent an entire year that they didn't need to spend finding out how things worked by trial and error when they could have saved themselves all that pain by actually doing the hard work and the unsexy work at the start. So, you know, it's very cliched, but, you know, if you don't, um, fa failing to plan is planning to fail, yeah. more or less. So you've got to do the planning and, and do the homework without getting stuck in analysis paralysis. You need to connect with people who understand the environment and preferably people who've been there. So uh, if you see an opportunity in a particular market, it really helps if you've got contacts and you can connect with those contacts and talk to them about how things are mm -hmm. and or to surround yourself with people who understand how international business works or who have done it and yeah. or to get team members who understand um, the international process, the international space and get those people around you. So instead of trying to go it alone, 
draw on people. Don't be, don't be too smart and too proud to refuse to accept advice from anybody else. You know, if you really don't know um, the environment, you need to say, I don't know what I don't know, and I'm going to go out and get some help. Yeah. Wow. That's, that is true. Like, even if it's a domestic business, you know, uh, finding people who know what they're doing and, you know, uh, they, you cannot have all the skills, right? You do not have all the information. So finding the right mentors, uh, uh, right people who have the knowledge is, is always useful. That's right. But I think in this space, although international business has been going on for a long time and international trade's been happening for a long time, it's quite recent that smaller businesses can actually work internationally especially in the services space so services businesses can now sell internationally in ways that they couldn't even five or ten years ago and that's fantastic because it's opened up a bunch of opportunity but there is this big black hole that i mentioned at the start of our conversation where people actually don't know how to do international business and many people don't even realize that there is a better way to do it i see so, so what are these opportunities? Can you share it with us? Like how, how has it changed over the last 10 years? Okay. Uh, I hate the word disruption, but I'm going to use it anyway. So technology has really done a lot to disrupt traditional business. And if you want an example of that, you just have to look at how things have changed. The things that we can do today that we couldn't do even a few years ago. So a few years ago, you and I couldn't have gotten on this show and talked to each other from other sides of the world and then had, had it distributed across the globe. Yeah. You know, that just not, was not possible. Um, a few years ago, it wasn't possible for me to work with clients in Australia and all around the world using video conference. That was not an option that was available. Um, I couldn't go and rent my apartment out on Airbnb to a complete stranger, you know, in about five or ten minutes. So, you know, as you look at what uh, technology has done, it has really shrunk the world and that's opened up access to many more people. Now, along with that, we've got a thing called global value chains. Uh, once upon a time, it was customary for all parts of one of a, a product to be man manufactured in the same place. So if you had a car that was made in Detroit, all of the bits of that car were made and lovingly put together in Detroit. Mm -hmm. These days, um, even though, you know, you've got some parts of the US administration that are not so keen on it and are trying to do stuff to kind of adjust that process a little, the norm is that when you create a product, you're going to source inputs from all over the world. And so your product is going to contain parts from four or five different countries that come together and then might be assembled in a sixth place. And this is even the case for services. So there are lots of services companies now that supply their customers in a particular country, but they're getting their inputs in their back office from other places. So maybe there's a US company that's supplying, you know, some kind of customer care to people in different states in the States. And, you know, half of its staff is actually in the Philippines and India. So even in services, you've got these global value chains happening. That by itself has just created opportunities for intra-industry and international trade, you know, because people are supplying services across borders. Yeah. The third thing that's creating these opportunities is the rise of the middle classes across the world, particularly in Asia and most particularly, most specifically in China and India, where you've got a couple of billion people in those two markets. And so the result has been when you add those together 
uh, and you look at other developing economies in Asia, the Middle East and Latin America, you've got three to four billion new consumers. So in short, there are a lot more people to sell to than there were 20 years ago. And so those are three mega trends that are really creating a huge amount of opportunity in the global space for players of all sizes. I mean, I know for a fact that there are micro businesses in Australia. There are people who make soy candles on their kitchen table at the weekend as a side hustle. Those guys are selling these soy candles all around the world. So, you know, anybody can do it. And it's, it, I find it kind of mind-blowing. And I, I think most people just don't realise the, the scale of the opportunity that's out there. Yeah, that's true. Now, let's, um, let's uh, be a devil's advocate and talk about also the additional risks in international trade. So, you know, you have, um, you have to uh, worry about uh, more regulations, more paperwork, sanctions, uh, which have been applied on some countries. So how do you navigate these complexities? Look, again, I think unless you've got a lot of time to sink into going through and ticking every box and doing all that due diligence yourself, it's a great idea to get help from people who've done it and to get people who specialise in those particular markets. One of the things I see people getting wrong all the time is foreign exchange. So, for example, I don't advise on foreign exchange, but I always ask people about what foreign exchange arrangements they've got in place and most people give me a blank look because I haven't done anything. But exposure to currency volatility is one of the huge risks for small companies. Uh, and it can, all, it can almost, it can wipe out profit for sure and it can even uh, cause some pretty significant damage to uh, a company if, you know, they signed a contract for a foreign currency payment at a certain point in time and they got paid five months later and that five months their own currency has has um you know decreased in price or the other way around so that's a massive risk that you need help with yeah that's true um all right so this has been a very uh, interesting conversation you know i've uh, i've been fascinated with international trade myself and uh, you know obviously i've lived across the world in a few countries so um it has been very uh, interesting to to learn about this so uh, thanks a lot for coming out of the show and sharing your knowledge about this uh, this uh, massive opportunity. Now, before I let you go, can you tell us how people can reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I am on LinkedIn all the time. So if you would like to connect with me, just uh, send me a connection request uh, at Cynthia Deeran. I think there's only one of me. Just personalize it so uh, I know what you need and how I can help. You could also get me on Twitter. It's just at Cynthia Deeran. Or you could uh, visit our website, which is Deeran, D-E-A-R-I-N, associates, A-S-S-O-C-I-A-T-E-S.com. There are loads of free resources uh, there that your listeners are really, really welcome to use, Manoj. There are videos, there are blogs, there are e-books. There's a bunch of stuff to help people get started in international business. And there is also the Business Beyond Borders podcast where you can check out stories of founders who've already been successful. Awesome. That's great. And that's all for now. Until next time. Now, if you're an entrepreneur or a career professional, then I invite you to join our growing community. Navigate to bootstrapping.group. As a welcome bonus, you will get the Startup Founders Technology Accelerator video series and 
Mastering Your Inner Game video series absolutely free. This series of short videos address some core issues which are instrumental in helping you move forward in your business or career. The videos are yours to view and share for free. No obligations or strings attached except for one. You have to take action and implement it. So join us today. Navigate to bootstrapping.group. If you want more engaging videos and insightful interviews with industry's thought leaders, then check out the other videos we have picked for you. The link is right there. And if you want to be notified about our new content, please do consider subscribing to our channel.